Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by Dr. Bob Larson, Dr. Brian Lubers, Dr. Philip Lancaster, and Dr. Dustin Pennell. Good morning, guys. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning, Brad. Happy to have you morning. with us. And happy to have you with us listening as well. If you have any questions, comments, we'd love to get feedback from you. You can always send us an email at bci at ksu.edu. Also a great way to sign up. We send out a weekly newsletter, which has some of the podcast topics, but also has some research updates from different people doing beef research. So today we're going to talk about a couple topics that I think are relevant to you at calving time, whereas we talk about, we've had some questions about small calves being born. We're going to talk about how to feed those cows or supplement the cows as those calves are being born, as well as start thinking about the next chapter, which is planning for AI. And we're going to talk a little bit about heifer bull selection, what bulls we would select for cleanup. And then Brian's done some research recently on some pathogens that are pretty important in bovine respiratory disease. Before we get into that, I, I wanted to ask you guys, I need uh, some help probably to come over because we have chickens in our barn and they usually lay their eggs in the nest, but not always. So last night I was moving a hay bale and what you don't want to hear when you move one of those hay bales is that pop. That egg was completely gas filled. So I'm wondering if you guys could come over this weekend and maybe help me move some hay bales around because I got to find out where those babies are. <laughs> Uh, uh, I'm busy this weekend. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all got tied a up. Pretty full schedule. Yep. That's yeah. no worries. Because I think I've got plenty of those. I will bring some in to you. Don't you worry. You will find them. Kind of like our Easter egg hunt we had one year that in August, when you find that last Easter egg, it's done. It's done. Well, so you're really going to bring me an egg that I can use as I want to? Is yeah. that what you're telling me? Oh, absolutely. And your office is next to mine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I think that's a wise move. So <laughs> go ahead. I would just put them in the cab of your truck on the drive in, Brad. Eleven yeah. of the twelve eggs that I bring you shall be good. <laughs> so uh let's let's jump in. And one of the things and, and we get this question, Bob, you and I have had this question several times where people will say, Boy, we're having and it may be an individual calf, but sometimes it's on a herd level where we say we're having small calves this year. Mm -hmm. They seem like they're all really small. And sometimes we don't have a great explanation for why that happens. Do you have any ideas? Yeah, I, I wish I knew for certain, and, and I don't. So I, maybe I should just stop talking now. But a couple of things that I think can really lead to that, again, like in a situation where it's multiple calves, it's not just one calf that's kind of small. Well, one, one possibility is that the bull is showing throwing small calves. And a lot of times that's associated with short gestation length. So um, a lot of times our Cavanese bulls, just the their offspring are in gestation shorter. Therefore, they're smaller. Therefore, they're Cavanese. And particularly if you stack a few generations like that, maybe, maybe we're just getting into some, some cow herds where the gestation is much less than our typical 283, 285 days. So that's that one wouldn't explain that wouldn't explain why it's this way one year and this way the next year. If well, you kept the you same bull, well, if you got a different bull or different bulls in, that that's why. But but you're right. That's why sometimes that doesn't seem like what's going on because nothing has changed in that area. So then the other side is is diet. And again, that some of the theories are protein because a lot of times, if the cow is thin, if the herd is really thin, well that makes sense. But what about in a herd where the body condition looks pretty good? Well, it's possible that we're a little bit lower than we should be on protein, maybe vitamin A, maybe some other things that we're not really certain of, where the cows are maintaining body condition, but it's still just not leading to quite as, as good a fetal growth. And, and some of the theories are protein and vitamin A, and then I would throw out things we don't know. Philip, does that make sense to you? 
Yeah, and you know, one of the things I thought of was blood flow to the to the uterus. You know, if you look at data, the calves born in you know late summer, early fall are typically lighter than our spring-born calves, even if you're using the same bull, same genetics, same cow herd. And there's some some data out of Clemson on fescue that the blood flow to the uterus is restricted with cows that are on fescue and those calves are born lighter. Um, and so there, and there's some fetal programming ramifications there in that situation. And so, you know, from one year to the other, you know, does it, does it matter how cold it is or how warm it is and how that affects physiology and blood flow in the dam and then nutrient supply to the fetus? We don't have good data. We don't know for sure, but that's a possibility. So what, so what should we do? What's the, what's the action? Well, I think I the action statement is be aware of the, the possible negative effect of stacking multiple generations of calving ease, that you may be getting into shorter gestation than you want. Also, just monitor your, your winter, in this case, spring calving herds, winter nutrition to make sure that the protein levels are being met, vitamin A levels are being met. Those are the things I can do. Um, and I think that would be helpful in many situations, but I, it, I'm, not, I'm not certain it would fix all situations, but that's what I would do as an action step. No, one, so, oh, sorry, one thing. Does it, the question is, does it matter? Yeah. If, the, if the calf is born healthy and strong and survives, does it make a big difference? I wish yeah. I knew the answer to and, that, too. Well, and that, that was my comment, too, Philip, is if you've got a calf that's, even if it's smaller, if it's able to survive and it's weaning along with, the other groups in the in the cohort does it matter and so um i you know spending time in the diagnostic lab we would get these you know these cases and often those calves died so there probably was an issue but um, you you can invest a lot of resources in figuring out what the problem is to figure out that maybe there wasn't a huge problem so i i would ask that question first before i started asking why questions right that's a great point brian because it's not only is it one or two calves or is it the herd right that's the first question and then two you're saying even if it's the herd if they're born light and they're healthy and they're gaining weight well is it a big deal now i may not need to do a bunch of investigation but to bob's point i may want to get to the root of it because long term this may be something i want to change but i don't need to go overboard on figuring out exactly why that happened Right, because I think what we've said here is maybe there's a big we don't know. So you you can spend a lot of resources to get to the we don't know. And it could, you know, we've talked about vitamin A. We've talked about bulls. We've talked about other nutrition. It might even just be a combination of all those things. And, and you can't, those are really difficult to sort out. It's not usually one or two. It's It's multiple factors. And so to do an investigation to try to come up with, the answer might be unrewarding, especially if it's not detrimental to your operation. I, I think that's the thing that we'd like to throw back, right? Is it nutrition or vitamins or minerals or any combination thereof? That means we may not know, yeah. right? We don't know what's going on there. So good, good feedback. And also when those calves are being born at this time of year, we're thinking about it is peak lactation season. So the cow is providing as much milk, which means she needs as much nutrition as any other time of the year or more than any other time of the year. So what do you guys think about, should I consider supplementing those cows? Because a lot of things I've heard you say, the lead up to calving is what's most important to body condition. That's when the best time to put weight on is. Should I supplement her post lactation? I'm going to say depends. <laughs> You're, you got to know what your K quality is, I think, to start with. 
and decide whether you have the, if you have hay of good enough quality to meet her nutritional needs through this time period. You know, it also depends a little bit on when you're, when you're calving. You know, if, if you're calving, you know, within 30 days of pasture green up, then you're probably going to be okay because she's going to hit that green grass with 30 plus days to go before breeding season starts and she's going to flesh back up and, and, and do just fine. Now this year with looming drought and pasture green up may be delayed or even if it is on time, it may the quantity may be very low. Um, we need to think about having some additional feed resources on hand they may need additional supplement or they may need supplement longer into the spring season before to maintain that body condition score up to breeding. Yeah. In, in my experience, it, it does depend a lot on the forage quality that your base forage quality, whether it's standing forage or, or, or hay. And as you start, started this section with, this is a, a time when they, the cows need a lot of energy and a lot of protein. And so many times, uh, our, our hay quality, even even our moderate quality hay, isn't sufficient energy and protein to meet all of our needs. So some supplementation is almost always needed. Um, the, one of the questions is, and I think Philip brings up a great point, especially around at least where we're living this this year. Um, I'm not counting on spring green up to occur quite as early as it typically does, uh, or the the quantity of grass. So we may need to be planning ahead for a little bit longer supplementation than what we typically would do uh, just to make sure that those cows can maintain body condition pretty well. I mean, they may lose a little weight, but we're trying to not get into trouble so that when green up finally occurs that they're ready to go. But when you guys say supplementation, give, give me a ballpark. What, what are you talking about there? Is that Are you talking about a small amount for the cows, a couple pounds each, or are we getting to the point that we're substituting some of the feed for the hay? How do, how do I sort that out? Well, I'm, I'm, I'll speak first because then Philip the nutritionist can fix anything I say. But basically, I think a lot of times this time of year, we're doing a little bit of, sub, uh, of substitution, meaning that my, my cubes or my hand-delivered feed is a much better quality, higher energy, higher protein than my forage. And their needs are high enough that I'm actually – to get to the right total diet composition, I am substituting. So it's, it might be four or five pounds, or it might be six or seven or eight pounds of a supplement, depending on, again, kind of the, the base forage quality. So let's, let's talk about substitution just for a little bit. And, and what we're doing, we're replacing hay with something else. And, and the type of supplement you're using can influence that quite a bit. If you, anytime you're feeding some supplement, you're probably doing a small amount of substitution. Um, but if we're using a, a, a supplement that has a lot of starch in it, then that level of substitution increases quite a bit. And the total energy intake and nutrient intake may not go up a whole lot. So we want to focus on some supplements that are high fiber. Uh, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but you know, distillers, grains, soybean hulls, wheat mids, some of those kinds of things, because those don't have a large, as large a substitution effect. And so we're actually increasing energy and protein intake when we use those types of supplements. Because otherwise you're negating some of the value of what hay you do have. Exactly. And so, you know, now thinking about amount, um, you know, one to two pounds is, is not probably not going to be sufficient. Um, that's usually what we think of when we think about a protein supplement, 
where we're just replacing the amount, of the low protein in the hay, but the digestibility of the hay is adequate to meet energy requirements. If we're having to maintain body condition score, that means we need to supplement energy. And so we're probably looking more in that range of four, five, six pounds per head per day of supplement to be able to, to get enough energy to maintain body condition score in those cows. Yeah, and because we're looking forward to calving, and when they get to calving, we want them to be, or after calving, to breeding, to get, be in good body condition score. And that way they get bred back. But if they started at low body condition score in calving, this is a hard time. This is not the time to make it up, right? I'm not going to gain any body score over this period. No, it's going to be very hard to gain body condition score here in early lactation. And be able to do that, it's not going to be cost effective. So it's about, it's about maintaining where you are and not getting behind. Because that's maybe what I'm concerned about is, is actually getting into a situation where as those calves are starting to nurse it, the cows actually start to lose body condition, that you lose a, a 50 or 100 pounds of body condition off a cow. And then that's not what I want going into the breeding season. Yeah, so it's something to think about as you, as you plan out that ration. But I think based on this conversation, it's worthwhile to consider what type of supplement am I providing. And if I want to keep it in that supplement range, how much should I feed? Because it is possible to feed. What I'm hearing, Philip, is you're saying if you feed too much of the wrong thing, I've moved into a category where now I've decreased the digestibility of the hay I do have, and, and it's counterproductive. Yeah, exactly. So work with work with your nutritionist or whoever's working with you on your ration uh, to come up with a plan for your herd. But it is a good time to think about supplementing. And supplementing over a period of time is easier than trying to play catch up right when you get to breeding season. And as we get to breeding season, I want, want to talk a little bit about uh, if you're planning to AI your heifers. We talked about bulls a couple weeks ago, and we talked about bulls that uh, you would purchase for your herd, whether you would get a cow bull or a heifer bull. And one, one of the things that we touched on briefly was, what about cleanup bulls? So if I'm gonna AI a group of heifers, are there any different selection criteria you would use to buy the cleanup bull or the bull that I would use after AI? And I know Dustin, you've got some ideas on the economic side of this. Yeah, I guess from the cleanup, I was gonna say there are decision tools available, uh, different different land grant universities websites such as agmanager.info that we'll put in our show notes that when you think about bulls versus AI plus cleanup bulls, just really just think through all the costs associated with it, probably could document. But one thing that I guess is maybe it's a little harder is that benefit. You know, how do you put a dollar value on the benefit of including, I mean, doing using AI because, you know, you're adding some different possible genetics into the pro into the herd. And so nonetheless, so you, you should try to look at, think through the, all the costs and benefits associated with, with the, you know, the AI plus a cleanup versus maybe just a bull. Yeah. It's interesting. I've worked with some producers and veterinarians that do a lot of, of, of AI, AIing heifers followed by cleanup bulls. And, and the cleanup bull part of it is often the more complicated part. You know, I, I kind of know what I need to do to get heifers in good condition so that I have a pretty successful AI breeding season, but the challenge comes in with the cleanup bulls because the, the heifers that don't stick to my AI, that don't become pregnant to AI are still kind of synchronized. And so, and because they're heifers, they're smaller, I'm not going to put a big mature bull on them. I'm going to put a yearling or, or long yearling bull on them and they can't breed as many cows as a mature bull. So I'm kind of stacking some things against me. I've even known some producers that have just gone all in on the heifer AI 
and maybe even a second round with estrus detection and no cleanup bulls. I'm not saying that's the right answer for everyone, but I like the idea of asking the question and getting out a sharp pencil and a piece of paper to really say, well, how many cleanup bulls do I need? Because I, you know, if we typically say a yearling bull can handle 15 heifers, well, that's 15 heifers that are spread over a 21 day period when they're, when they're going to be tighter, you know, like most of them are going to come in in five days or a week. Well, I probably need more clean, more bulls than that. And you're going, well, now I'm buying a lot of cleanup bulls. Those become, I think this is one where I would hate to tell someone exactly what to do. I think they need to get a piece of paper and a pencil and look at their options. But the kind of the unique option I heard somebody say was no cleanup bulls. So either sufficient cleanup bulls or none, or maybe somewhere in between. So, so you basically said you could do a bunch, a few, or somewhere in between. That was your answer? I think that is what I said. <laughs> Brian, did that help you make your decision on cleanup bowls? Yeah, yeah, no. Um, I I don't know if I I don't know if I've thought much about the characteristics as far as like EPDs and things I would look at there. But kind of to Bob's point, if if I have a, the thoughts of a cleanup bowl because I've AI'd my thought is, well, I've taken some of the workload off the bull, but I agree with Bob, it, there's still a lot of workload and it's in a very short period of time. So if you ask me characteristics of a cleanup bull, and we've talked about this, make sure that that bull is able to do his job, like his physical condition, his breeding soundness exam, all of that needs to be plus plus. He, you can't go in halfway with a cleanup bull. Sometimes you can do that with cows where okay, I've got, he's going to be spread out It, you know, probably, but I think in this situation, he needs to be in tip top shape. There's, there's no warming up to it, no. right? You can't go, Oh, you got a few weeks to kind of get ready to go here because on a cleanup, you've got him synced. And that's what Bob said. And you're saying he's got to be ready to go right out of the gate. Yep. So relative to the numbers of cleanup bulls, it, we may not know the exact answer, but they have to be ready. And I do think you do need to do some of the math to get them ready. You know, I've listened to some discussions on, on this that that you may need the same number of cleanup bulls that you would if you didn't AI at all. Mm-hmm. Because all those animals that didn't stick are so synchronized that you've got to have the same number of bulls to be able to cover them. What do you guys think about that? I think it depends on your goals. You can't, it, it, then I lose some of my benefits and all of a sudden my cost per pregnancy has skyrocketed because Bob told me I've got to get, well, some number between zero and a hundred bulls, but he also said, <laughs> I've got to get yearling bulls every year because I'm getting these bulls that have just passed their BSE. They're coming out because they're heifers. So now my cost per pregnancy is already high because I'm replacing those bulls every year. That's what you're yeah, recommending. So I, I, I want to, I want to be clear in my lack of clarity. I, <laughs> I, I think I, I think I cleared that up for you. I really do like AIing heifers. I like using those proven AI sires on heifers. I like synchronizing them so they got a chance to get bred early. I, I really like that part of it, and I think a lot of people should seriously consider that. The real problem is then, what do I do about cleanup bulls? And I'm gonna, I'm leaning towards thinking about none. Which, no, I, think, which is, I think the problem is cost per pregnancy. It, I'm, a, I'm gonna why. say the problem is cost per pregnancy, and I wouldn't have a problem with depending on what my goals are and how many heifers I needed, you have to do the math because I'm not going to get, if I get 60% on bread, first service AI mm-hmm. conception rate, and then I put in 
a cleanup bowl or two at a relatively low ratio, if I'm planning on keeping those pregnancies, awesome. And whatever they get bred is great. Even if it's not as good as even if I it's would typically. Even think. if it's not as good as what I did. T- but then I have to train my thoughts to say, I'm going to accept a lower overall pregnancy rate. Because otherwise, I get out of the season, I go, well, I didn't have enough cleanup bowl power, but I'm, I got 80% pregnant. Now I'm upset. Yeah, I, we're talking about bowl selection here, but I think part of it, part of the thought is how how deep do I want to select into my heifer pool, right? So so heifers that aren't getting pregnant with one round of AI and a cleanup bull, am I willing to take 80% and move on forward, or do I need 95%? I've got to do something different. Exactly. So you have to figure out which of those is my actual goal for getting out. And that may dictate maybe I do no cleanup bulls. Then I'm relying a lot on mm-hmm. AI and how well that works to go, go through well. the system. Yeah. So, Brian, we mentioned, and, and we've got just a little bit of time here. You were part of a research paper, and you looked at there, there are several pathogens, bacteria, that are associated with respiratory disease. And we have always said they come from the cattle, right? So the cattle are the home environment. The cattle are the home base for those. And the best way that we think of getting them is spreading them by contact or sneezes or close proximity or some of that mucus. And and you did some work looking at how long do those things live in the environment? So on metal or wood or some of those areas that we have around cattle working facilities. What'd you find out? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, our, so the, we did this research in collaboration with um, Dr. Sarah Capick, who's down at uh, Texas A&M AgriLife Station and uh, one of her students. And our goal was to not answer the question about, you know, if it's in the environment, can it cause disease? Um, our goal was really more, can these bacteria survive in the environment? So it, it still may be that the primary mode of transmission of, of these agents is animal to animal. But if there's an environmental con- contribution to that, we wanted to know, you know, how significant it is. And if it's different, in different environments. And so we looked at um, three different temperatures, kind of uh, 37, so kind of a cooler temperature, 71, and then 97 degrees. Um, and we looked on three different materials, so stainless steel, uh, polypropylene, and wood spheres. And we did all this in the lab. So this is a, a lab-controlled experiment. Uh, we knew how much bacteria each of those materials at each of those temperatures was exposed to. Um, we did that exposure and Lynn looked at how long the bacteria survive uh, for two hours, six hours, 24 and 48 hours. And just to see what the effects of essentially material time and temperature were on growth. And I, I don't know that our results were, were terribly surprising. Um, we found that, that stainless steel does not do a good job of supporting bacterial growth, but that um, on wood and plastic, we can see those bacteria um, stay viable for for some period of time and so if there is an environmental contribution um, those types of material are things that you know we talk about biosecurity on the podcast a lot we need to think differently about how we do biosecurity within our hood our our herd especially because and and you said maybe not surprisingly because those are porous materials so when you look at wood and whether it's some sort of plastic depending on the type of plastic it's going to have some of those pores that those bacteria can go into and i think that's a that's interesting to see and 
probably just encourages us because that's not the only bacteria where we're going to observe that phenomenon. So making sure that our facilities are clean, especially if we've had sick animals come through. And like you said, yours is lab work. We don't know. Did it transmit to the next one? But there's been some work done on viruses that they can stay on the shoot for short periods of time. So I want to be sure that my working facilities are clean, especially if I've had sick animals come through. Yeah. And, and think, and think maybe differently about my biosecurity, depending on what environment materials I'm working with. So yep. if I'm, I'm working with steel or plastic, it's a little bit different than I'm working with wood. Hard to get, hard to get wood Sorry. as clean as you can yep. some of those other materials. So great, great research there. And appreciate you sharing that update. We appreciate you joining us and listening with us today. If you have any Questions, thoughts, anything you'd like us to talk about on a future episode, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.